to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. My daughter Catherine recently celebrated her third birthday, and we had a great party in honor of it. We ate good food. We had a dance party slash musical chairs game, like at the beginning of the kids' show, Bluey, where the person who's still dancing after the music stops is eliminated until you crown the grand dance champion. And of course, Catherine opened presents. Now for Catherine, the pinnacle of her present receiving time were the pretty dresses. My sweet little girl loves pretty dresses. And thanks to generous family members, her cousin Layla's hand-me-downs, and a mommy who loves to dress her little girl, Catherine has a lot of pretty dresses. She's also received a plethora of costume dresses, both Disney and non-Disney types. Here's a picture of her dressed up as Cinderella for Halloween, modeling one such dress. In fact, that's the whole family. That was our theme this year. Now, Catherine loves trying on dress after dress and wearing them to preschool, even when it gets cold, and she's cold. She's committed to her fashion. Now, if I'm honest, I am a bit overwhelmed by the number of dresses that Catherine has now. Is Catherine overwhelmed? Not even a little bit. In fact, she keeps asking me to take her to the store to buy her more pretty dresses. She seems to have an insatiable desire for pretty dresses. What she has just isn't enough. She needs more. Now, when our family is home watching a show together that is not commercial-free, I like to skip ads if at all possible. But if I attempt to do this, the children complain. They like the advertisements. They're intrigued by the items that are being sold. And all of a sudden, they discover a need they didn't know that they had for a toy they've never heard of before or for a car that is better than ours in multiple ways. Or maybe something for baby Jude, because they are very selfless. It's as if commercials have a goal to create discontent and separate us from money for the fleeting promise of happiness or purpose or status. Last Friday, I went to the grocery store with Catherine to buy some Thanksgiving groceries. And every two minutes, Catherine would say, Daddy, stop! Go back! I want that. Anything that was bright, sparkly, pink, or resembled candy or ice cream in any way made the cut for Catherine. I wanted to get in and out, to buy our groceries and to go home. Catherine, on the other hand, had a different plan. And honestly, the Christmas stuff in every store isn't helping. Some of it popped up before Halloween, which is totally ridiculous. But certainly, as soon as Halloween is over, retailers move straight to Christmas. It's as if they don't want us to pause and give thanks, to consider all that we have to be grateful for, to be content with time, with family and food, and a spiritually forming holiday like Thanksgiving, a holy day that isn't about consuming, but about contentment and gratitude. I can't imagine why that might be. There have been pre-Black Friday sales going on for weeks now, it seems. And of course, Black Friday just passed to be quickly followed by Cyber Monday tomorrow. Last Saturday, I found myself looking at a pair of earbuds. Not that I needed a pair. I already had one. In fact, I was using them at the time. But these earbuds cost $300 when they were first released in 2018. The audio quality was supposed to be amazing. and They were being sold for under 40 bucks. Surely, I could use another pair when I invariably lose the ones that are in my ears right now. The advertising caught me. 
And if we aren't careful, it can catch us all. Thanksgiving is about gratefulness and being content. Advertising is about creating discontent that can only be cured through the almighty dollar or the handy credit card. Does any of this seem a little manipulative? Of course it is. But I find myself being sucked in anyway. I am not as free from the need for more and the desire to buy as I like to think. We all struggle to be a little bit like Catherine sometimes. So as we wrap up our All That Is Needed series, exploring how simplicity can clear space in our lives for what really matters, I want to pause and consider the relationship between gratitude, contentment, and generosity. Because I want us to resist the message of our culture and the materialistic season that we're already in and simply ask, how much is enough? Can we learn to be content? Can we learn to be grateful? And if we did, would we become better people? Would we become people who are more like Jesus? Because we need to choose to live a different way, a way that aligns with our values and with the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been a baseball fan for a long time, and baseball likes to call itself America's game or the great American pastime. And if I'm honest, I don't think baseball has been America's game for years, as football has a firm stranglehold on the hearts of sports fans, especially at Thanksgiving. And I don't think that baseball has been America's pastime for decades either. I think shopping is the great American pastime. And when I read the teachings of Jesus, I become convinced that all of us are in danger of being held captive by greed and materialism. I'm convinced that if Jesus were teaching today in our country, this is one area that he would continually challenge us to break free from. I'm convinced of this because Jesus talked about it a lot when he was on earth 2,000 years ago. Here are just a few of his teachings that we've highlighted throughout the series. Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship toward God. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart and thoughts will also be. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your soul. Jesus is pretty clear over and over again that money and possessions can keep us from God and even replace him in our lives. This is a significant danger. None of us want to lose our souls. So what is the solution? The apostle Paul seemed to think it was tied to gratitude, contentment, and generosity. In fact, I believe that cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. We'll be in Philippians 4 this morning if you want to turn there in your Bible. Let's start at verse 11, and we'll jump around a little bit, but at verse 11, Paul is discussing the church in Philippi's generosity to him, but then he says this, not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing and with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Now, the church in Philippi generously helped provide for Paul's needs on his missionary journey. In fact, they were his only supporting church, and he was incredibly grateful to them. 
But amidst his thankfulness in talking to them about this, he pins these words about contentment, that he has learned to be content. No matter the situation he finds himself in, he has rooted his identity and joy not in his possessions, but in Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome to be content, not to have this constant need for something else in life? This is something that Paul says we can learn. It doesn't come naturally, and our culture and our hearts are often singing a different tune, one about consuming, leading to comfort and completion. But we know that it doesn't deliver. Instead, we can learn to be content right here, right now, today. This is a discipline. It's a practice. It's something that we can develop. And it starts not with willpower, but with God's work in us followed by our practice of gratitude. Paul tells us first that contentment is God's work in us, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Contentment may seem far away like a dream that could never become a reality, but with God's help, all things are possible. And for Paul, Christ gives him the strength to be content no matter his circumstance. Paul lived a life rooted in relationship with God first after the way of Jesus. To find contentment, we need to rightly order our loves and priorities, starting first with the rich relationship with God and others, Jesus' words. It is in these relationships that true riches are found and where ever-expanding love abounds. Not only that, but Paul had a wonderful humility regarding God's incredible love and forgiveness of him. He knew that his relationship with God wasn't something he earned, but was an invaluable gift he'd been given, which he repeated over and over in his letters. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now the Apostle Paul was once a young, zealous Pharisee who hunted down followers of Jesus before his miraculous encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He knew that he hadn't earned this. He'd received a gift. In fact, in his letters, Paul described himself as the worst of all sinners, the chief of sinners. And when he talked about this, I don't think Paul was dealing strictly in facts. I think that there were probably individuals in Paul's time that were worse than him. In fact, we can look at history and say like, oh man, there are probably some people who, who were far greater sinners if you were just comparing than Paul was. But I think that in this way, when Paul's talking about this, he's expressing the sentiment of his heart as he embraced the profound nature of grace and forgiveness. Paul, in response to God's love and amazing grace, could only live his life as an expression of love for God. Gratitude and grace share the same etymology and root meaning. It is the central aspect to the entire experience and journey of the Christian faith. When we properly connect to God, our lives become an endless expression of thanks and praise. When we see our lives in this light, contentment is one of the byproducts. But it's more than just good theology. Cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. Earlier in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, Paul gives us more insight on what to do to practice this. He says this, starting in verse four, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. So Paul calls us, he encourages us to rejoice, to worship God, which is the natural response to all God has done and who God is. 
when we celebrate and rejoice in Christ, we keep our focus where it needs to be, and we learn to worship God regardless of our circumstances because of who he is and not because of what he may have done for us lately or how life may be going in this particular moment. Paul also tells us to be considerate and to think of others before ourselves. If we consider others' needs first, this helps us to get outside of ourselves and to love others well. It is far easier to be content when we aren't laser-focused on ourselves. Then Paul continues, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. When we worry about life, about what we don't have that we'd like to have, or the possibility of losing what we already have, we should lean into God in prayer. Prayer is the primary way we relate to God, and it is the first spiritual practice we should pursue. It's the heart of the relationship with Jesus, talking, listening, resting in God's presence and love like a child in a parent's lap. We spend time with God. Instead of worrying, we pray about everything. Peter says it this way, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Worry is an indicator that we need to pray. And in prayer, we turn to God and release our worries to him. This is something I try to practice in my own life. All of the things that I can't control, all of the worry, all of the pain that you may have, you can give it to God over and over and over again. The pain of a broken relationship, the hurt of betrayal, the financial crisis, the loss of a home, family turmoil, fear of job loss, the breakup of a marriage, the anger of pain inflicted by others. Every day, countless times a day, you give it to God. This is not some idle speculation on my part. I can guarantee you that this absolutely works as I've done it over and over, processing the challenging parts of my life. Trying to control things that are uncontrollable is not only futile, but destructive. Instead, release it to God. And when it comes to mind again, pray to him and give it to him again and again and again. The more you give your worries to him, the better you will become at finding freedom from worry. Then Paul continues, after you pray, you tell God what you need and you thank him for all that he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So in prayer, we express our needs and our concerns and our worries, and then we thank God for all he's done. And this is the key practice that I want to pause on in this passage in Philippians 4. If you want to experience peace, like Paul says, if you want to grow in contentment, the primary thing you need to grow in is gratitude and thanksgiving. Paul is telling us exactly what he has done to experience contentment and peace in all circumstances. Cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. We live in the richest country in the history of the world, and even those of us who live modestly compared to others in the United States are richer than 90% of people on earth. Author and pastor John Ortberg says it this way, people are healthier, cleaner, richer, and better informed than ever. We live longer, eat better, dress warmer, work less, and play more than ever in the history of the human race. But are we happier? Or are we just cleaner, healthier, better dressed, discontents? We have been blessed in so many ways, but it is easy to be distracted by all the things we are told we need or those that we just want, and our lives seem less because we don't have them. Our lives are not empty. Money and possessions will never bring us true joy or life. Only God can do that. But we still struggle here. 
Ortberg recently relayed on his excellent podcast, How Much We Need Gratitude. Apparently, there's a growing negativity in our world, especially in the West. One of the ways this is observable is the topics of pop songs. Music that used to be dominated by love songs has been changing, and the number of songs about love over the past 50 years has been cut in half. News headlines over the past few decades are increasingly filled with anger, sadness, and disgust. It's as if the news outlets best interest, read their financial bottom line, is to encourage us to extreme emotions and keep us clicking on the next story. Globally on surveys, the number of people who put themselves in the least happy category has more than doubled. We need gratitude to turn the tide, to experience joy and peace and contentment in spite of circumstance. But gratitude is not our default. It must be learned. We don't come out of the womb saying please and thank you. We have to be brought up to be grateful. Now, I can tell you from firsthand experience with my children that the words that come most easily are no and mine. Thanks doesn't come naturally, but it's worth fighting for and cultivating in our kids and in ourselves. Now, every Thanksgiving, my mother would inevitably ask my least favorite question. What are you thankful for? And I hated it. It wasn't just that I didn't like being put on the spot. It was mostly that I didn't have many answers. I didn't know what to say. In retrospect, I don't think that I lived a life that was overflowing with thanksgiving. I took the blessings in my life for granted. And so I hated that what are you thankful for question. This was incredibly clear at Christmas Day during my youth. I was thankful for the Christmas gifts that I wanted and unthankful for those I didn't. If I didn't get something I really wanted, I wasn't grateful for what I received, but frustrated that I didn't get another toy or video game or movie. Saying thank you was often something that I did automatically. Mom and dad would turn to me and ask, what do you say? And I would respond with the obligatory, thank you. I think that parents hope that eventually their children will grow into adults who have lives that are marked by genuine gratitude. But for me, the thank you would rarely touch my heart. And I don't think I'm the only one who is like that. I believe many of us struggle with giving thanks because we lack perspective. If we are ever going to become people who are generous, who have a spirit of giving our time and money and lives to God and others, we must first become people who are grateful for what we have and the life that we have been blessed with. Cultivating contentment produces, or sorry, cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. Gratitude is a way of seeing things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? This is one of the most challenging and even perhaps haunting verses of the Bible. In an age when we celebrate hard work and like to think that we've earned everything we have, it is incredibly easy to look or to overlook that we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Consider my son Jude. Long before he will be able to say thank you to anyone, he has been cared for. He has been prayed for. He was knit together in Megan's womb by God and was preserved through a partially separated placenta. Instead of miscarriage, he was born. Born early, but born. And he was cared for in the hospital by teams of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. Every day of his life, he has been cared for. And he's only two and a half months old. He is a gift. And others have given him the gift of their care and love. 
Now consider your life. So much of your life has been built by others. God has been intimately involved in the whole process. And when you look back on your life, you will see moments where God was powerfully present, when God was preserving you and preparing you. But let's just leave God out of it for a moment. You have parents who watched over you, who protected you and cared for you and have been generous to you long before you knew it. And it wasn't just parents, it was a whole greater family and friend group. You have physical gifts, attributes and talents that you had no control over. They were given to you. And now you are able to cultivate those gifts to make a life for yourself in your studies or career or friendships and families. My entire life should be soaked in gratitude because my entire life has been built by others and I have merely taken the blessings I've been given and done my best not to squander them. What do you have that God hasn't given you? Neil Plantica tells us that gratitude is the glad sense that you have been gifted with something by someone that put you into a position of indebtedness. It's the glad sense. It's a rejoicing that we've been given a wonderful gift and we can't help but respond with thanksgiving. We may be in someone's debt, in God's, in our parents, in others, but we're joyful over it because what they have given freely of things that come at great cost to them, their time, their money, their care, life, so that we can flourish and give our lives and time and money and care away to others. Just like God's call of Abraham, we are blessed to be a blessing. Cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father. So much of the way that we feel about our lives is determined by what perspective we choose to view it from. So let's be people who consistently choose to remember the blessings God has poured out on us and give thanks for all that we've been given instead of focusing on the small things that we don't have. This is done through the stories that we tell ourselves and how we curate our thought life. Philippians 4 again, Paul encourages us to do just that, to curate our thought life. And now, brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Paul encourages us to focus our minds on the things that are true and praiseworthy. We have to capture the thoughts that threaten to run toward worry and want and discontent and make them obedient to Christ. We can choose what we focus on and we can cultivate our minds. Philanthropist and Christian John Templeton of Templeton Prize fame compared our minds to a garden. If you exercise no control, your mind will become a weed patch and a source of shame and misery. If you exercise wise control, then it will be filled with God's miracles and become a place of indescribable beauty. You are free to choose which. How can you do it? Simply, for example, develop a habit of looking at each thought as though you would a plant. If it is worthy, if it fits the plan you desire for your mind, cultivate it. If not, replace it. How do you get it out of your mind? Simply by putting in its place two or three thoughts of love or worship, for no mind can dwell on more than two or three thoughts at a time. Circumstances outside the garden of your mind do not shape you. You shape them. 
If you fill your mind with thoughts of love, you will give love and receive it. If you think little of God, he will be far from you. If you think often of God, the Holy Spirit will dwell more in you. The glory of the universe is open to every person. Some look and see, some look and see not. Gardens are not made in a day. God gave you one lifetime for the job. Control of your garden or your mind grows with practice and the study of the wisdom other minds have bequeathed you. We choose what we will focus on, what thoughts we will entertain and which ones we will replace. We need to choose to focus our thoughts in the way that Paul directs us and tell ourselves stories of God's goodness. Some people are the hero of every story they tell. Some are the victim. Some see everything in their life through a lens of trauma and some see through a lens of gratitude. I encourage you to choose to tell yourself the story of your life through the lens of thankfulness to God. I recently heard a woman describe her journey with stage four cancer. What has been objectively the worst year of suffering and pain of her life was for her a testament of God's love, provision, and care. Long before she knew that she would miraculously beat cancer in this season, she saw God's goodness and blessings in this terrible experience. And as I listened to Debbie relay her story that day, I took up my notebook and began writing down all the ways that God had met us through our son Jude's premature birth and time in the hospital two and a half months ago. Because I can choose what lens I focus on as I tell this story. So let me share with you just a little bit of God's blessings and provision for us these past few months. The night that Megan's water broke at 30 weeks, I was already awake at two in the morning. Catherine had come into the room and I comforted her and taken her back, so I was prepared to help. In fact, not only was I awake, my sister-in-law, Becky, and her husband, Josh, were also awake. So when I called them at two in the morning saying, can you come be at our house? They were ready. When we got to the hospital, the doctor that met us in triage was Dr. Tran. She delivered my nephews and niece. She attended to Megan after previous births, and we felt safe with her immediately. It was someone that we knew and trusted. When we moved from triage to labor and delivery, we walked into the room, and the nurse with her mask on turned to us and said, I know you. It was Casey's good friend from Yuma, Jamie. We knew our nurse. She visited our church and was able to be present with us and pray for us in this scary time. While we were there early, Megan was able to receive another round of steroids to help Jude's lungs develop. She was able to receive a magnesium infusion for brain development. Every additional treatment that they would have ever done for a premature birth was done. Megan started bleeding on the Thursday after we went to the hospital. Um, as we were in the room, one of the nurses came in to encourage us, the doctor we were interacting with, um, she said, I want you to know that you have a superstar team. That if everything, anything was ever going to happen to me, these are the doctors I would trust. So I know that this is scary. But if they tell you that, that it's time to deliver your baby, trust them. They will help you. We had friends who were able to stay with Catherine. Those days were at the hospital, Aiden and Catherine and Roland. Um, in fact, the day of Megan's C-section, Lacey had decided my sister-in-law came over to visit. And I decided I needed to come home and relieve Abby, who was watching the kids. And as I was pulling into the driveway, Lacey texted me and said, you need to come back. 
your son's going to be born today. They're going to do a C-section. You need to be here. And Abby was able to stay longer with our children. And I came back, and Lacey was there through the whole surgery process with us, encouraging us. In surgery, the two doctors who were operating on Megan saw clearly that the placenta had been separating from the uterus, and that it was absolutely vital that we had delivered that day. If the placenta separates from the uterus, both the baby and the mother can die. And so it was an excellent decision. The NICU doctor that was there, Dr. Luchaco, we found out later was a Christian. And he was the doctor who evaluated Jude and was the first to give him care. Every day when he drives to the NICU, he prays for the nurses and for the children he's going to care for. When Jude came out, he had an incredible APGAR score for a kid who was 30 weeks and three days. He scored a nine out of 10, um, which is pretty incredible. He was as healthy as he could have been. We made the decision a few months before this happened to send Roland to a particular school because we had friends going there. We knew a teacher there, um, even though it was further away than we would have preferred. And Roland's school was effectively right across the street from the hospital. So we would drive there and drop him off for school and then be able to go to the hospital. We were carpooling with friends who were able to take our kids to school during that season. Catherine was immediately able to start going to preschool four days a week because we had generous friends donate money to help pay for it. We had so many friends coming and caring for us, doing laundry and dishes and weeds and helping with our children. We had a breast pump that had been given from a friend before, so we were immediately able to start doing that. They even have free therapy for mothers of children in the NICU. And Megan had just been released from a previous therapist and was able to start right away with a new one. And I could go on. There were so many small ways that we saw God's hand of providence throughout the whole process. But we don't have to tell the story that way. We could have told a different story, one of disruption and pain and fear and loss. But we chose gratitude. And as Megan and I follow Jesus and draw near to God, we can't help but see how God has met us in the season of challenge. God has been good to us. There is a lot to be thankful for. So as we practice gratitude consistently, it begins to reframe our reality. We begin to experience the joy, peace, and contentment that Jesus says is possible for those who follow him. We learn the secret of contentment that Paul says, that the God of peace is with us as we put into practice what we've been taught. Cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. Now, this sort of cultivation doesn't seek to minimize past pain, but rather to see how God can make beautiful things from our brokenness. Many of us have gone through horrible experiences and been deeply hurt during our lives, but we can decide if those events will control our present and our future as well. We need to avoid replaying our deepest pains and hurts over and over again. Our memories are powerful. If we let them, negative memories will affect how we see everything in life. Instead, we need to choose to remember the wonderful parts of our lives. Consider the high points and dust off those memories. Rehearse those. Many great moments can be hidden behind negative ones. You may not be able to forget the pain you've experienced, but you don't always have to remember it. Choose to make today one of those positive memories you can look back on with joy. Contentment is also not complacency. Much of our Simplicity series has been about letting go of the things that are keeping us from living out the way of Jesus and the values that we care the most about. 
And this is a journey that we've been on for six weeks just to help us get started. We wanted to sit there and let you really start wrestling with these issues. But it's not something that we're done with. I hope this is something that you will continue to work through and explore because even if we are content, we're not complacent. We still pursue growth. I can experience contentment and joy and peace while still growing to become more and more the person God had in mind when he created me. To move into contentment and ultimately generosity, we start with cultivating gratitude. The psalmist declares, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. It is good to proclaim your unfailing love in the morning, your faithfulness in the evening. So let me encourage you to practice this in one primary way. Keep a gratitude journal. Find a notebook or use the DR notebooks we gave you and start to record what you're thankful for. Start or end your day with gratitude. What has been a blessing today? What have you realized from your past is something you can rejoice over and be thankful for? What are you looking forward to in the future? How has God met you? How has your family, friends, and church made God's love tangible to you in even the hardest times? Write it down. Make a record of it. We so easily forget and take our blessings for granted. I wanted to write out all the ways that God has met us through Jude's journey because I don't want to forget And I want to be able to remind myself to rejoice over God's goodness in the future. Not only that I have a son who is alive and thriving, but all the small ways God was there in the process. Robert Emmons, the foremost researcher on the impact of gratitude in our lives and the author of Gratitude Works, tells us of two women who are champion gratitude journalers. One woman from Utah named Jane committed to only list each blessing in her life one time. In the process, she became very specific in her record, and over the period of 18 years, she has recorded more than 18,266 blessings. Another woman in West Virginia has more than 23,000 entries, and neither of these women live particularly easy lives, nor did the writing come particularly easily to them. It would have been far easier for them to record the disappointments and the grudges and the complaints, but that would have produced a very different life in them and it would do the same in us. Instead of rehearsing the pain, we rehearse the joy. And this practice is most important when life is hard. The harder things are, the more vital it is for us to have eyes to see God's goodness and blessings and to rejoice in them, even in the imperfect gifts. Research shows that people who kept a gratitude journal were 25% happier than those who did not. And interestingly, they worked out 30% more than those who didn't. So if you'd like to work out more, Get in better shape. Perhaps keeping a gratitude journal could help. And even if it doesn't impact your workout routine, you'll be 25% happier. And doing this will help produce contentment and allow the Holy Spirit to remind you of all God has done for you. Now, throughout this series, we've tried to unpack the advantages of simplicity and its intersection with the way of Jesus. Joshua Becker, author and blogger at becomingminimalist.com and follower of Jesus, defined pursuing minimalism and simplicity as the intentional promotion of things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. This isn't something that happens overnight, but it is something that is worth pursuing in the season. Let go of the discontent that so easily ensnares us. Fight against the messaging of our culture that just one more thing will be enough and serve the God of enough and realize that we have more than we need. Now the benefits of this are numerous. Here's just a few that Becker mentioned in a recent interview I listened to. Reducing 
Living simply gives you more space and time to focus on what really matters. You spend less time cleaning and organizing. You spend less money. There's less stress because every increased possession adds increased anxiety. It provides a wonderful example to our children about contentment. It benefits the environment. There's a process of heart reordering that happens. Contentment can become much closer than before, as is gratitude and generosity. It's as if they're all interlocked. It also produces a questioning of our values. What do I want my life to stand for and be about? Now, in the first week of our series, Megan encouraged us to simplify around our values. For me, I quickly wrote down these values regarding how I'd like our home life to look because they've been in my heart and mind for a while. The first is together over separate. I want our family to be together and to choose pursuits that draw us into community instead of into isolation. Secondly, I want to choose creation versus consumption. It is so easy to live our lives as consummate consumers, but how could we organize our home or encourage creation instead of consumption to play music, to make art, to write and tell stories, to make up games, to cook good food? Thirdly was hospitality. We want our home to be a place that others are welcomed into and cherished. The fourth was peace or calm or shalom. No matter what is happening outside of our door or how the world orders itself, we can order our home in a way that promotes peace, calm, and ultimately shalom, the benevolent ordering that promotes the flourishing of all. And finally was joy. And probably more than anything else, I want our home to be full of joy. I want our children to want to return home once they leave because of the joy they experience there, rejoicing in God, each other, and the life that God has blessed us with. Now, I don't know what values you decided or what values you discovered in the process, but perhaps as you simplify, it will help you to unearth those values. As you struggle to let go of items or simplify your schedule, you can pause to consider, why is this so hard for me? What is this revealing about where I really placed my trust or what values my family instilled in me growing up? How can I intentionally promote what matters most to me? Now, there are a number of resources that have been helpful to me as I've processed this simplicity series that I'd like to recommend. The Minimalist documentary on Netflix is excellent and even includes interviews from my other longtime pastor here, Erwin McManus, other than John Ortberg, who you hear about plenty. Um, Joshua Becker's website, becomingminimalist.com, has great resources, and you could probably find all you need there. But if you really like buying books, The More of Less explores the why of simplifying and minimalism, and The Minimalist Home dives into the how of simplifying your home. They're great places to start. I have championed DR shares for a long time. What if we didn't have to buy everything, but could share items like tools or books, even cars from time to time? You can connect with that on Church Center and start sharing with your church community instead of always having to buy something. There's also Buy Nothing groups on Facebook that were mentioned earlier in the series that I've benefited from and plan to bless others through as well. Our series was inspired by a similar series on simplicity you can find at practicingtheway.org. And finally, as I mentioned, I've been listening to the Gratitude Challenge on the John Ortberg podcast. All of November has been focused on gratitude, and I think you will benefit from turning your mind to gratitude more and more in the coming weeks. Advent season, which we're about to start, is a time of great rejoicing, and Thanksgiving can continue even as we approach Christmas. Now, I'm not sure what I'm going to do for Christmas and Catherine's great love of pretty dresses, but as much as she loves pretty dresses, she loves time with me and Megan more. I want to make memories together with our kids and family and friends more than I want to buy another dress that my daughter doesn't really need, or at least doesn't need until she grows a little bit. 
I saw a few people post a list on social media. It's called 52 Clutter-Free Gifts. And that's a good place to start and may be helpful to you. I didn't realize at the time, but it was a post from the becomingminimalist.com website, which I just mentioned. And many of the ideas there are wonderful, not only for others, but for yourself. Things maybe you could request instead of another item. For Catherine, I want her to develop a heart of gratitude for all of the good gifts that she has received, not just the dresses. And as Megan and I cultivate contentment through gratitude and give generously, just like we've been given to, I pray that my children will experience thankfulness as a natural response to all of their blessings. Cultivating gratitude produces contentment, which leads to generosity. While I may not have liked being asked what I was thankful for, it was a good practice for my soul. And as I have practiced, I've learned how to be grateful. I've learned how to be content. God has done a work in my heart, and God can do the same for you. And our lives will be richer for it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is so much to be thankful for. When we pause and start realizing the reality of our life, of the good and perfect gifts we've been given, the way that we've been cared for, the, the abilities, our good bodies, Lord. There are so many things to be grateful for, but it's so easy to overlook them, not to be thankful for what we have. As we enter this season and continue in the holiday season, Lord, help us to pause, to be grateful, to cultivate grateful hearts and begin to experience the contentment that you say we can, we can learn to have, that we can practice our way into, Lord. And we know that as we are grateful and content, that generosity will flow, that love and life and joy will flow from us into the world. Thank you for blessing us to be a blessing for others. Thank you for the way you have loved us. May we love others in the same way. So in Jesus' holy name, I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.